by any standard, he was a bit strange. They wouldn't allow him to preach in their churches, so he went out to the wilderness and he preached to the birds. And the crowds followed him out into the wilderness. If you went there, you'd see him flailing his arms all about. Maybe you could imagine a preacher doing such things. He had long, flowing hair, and his beard was matted down by roasted locusts and raw honey. Cotton and brushed wool were, of course, available in those days, but he chose to wear a tunic made of camel hair instead. It was almost like he wanted to invite the itch of this world such that he would not get too comfortable in this world and he would cultivate a deeper longing for another world. His parents were barren. They were that couple that would pray and pray and pray. Perhaps you've known one of these barren couples. Perhaps you were a barren couple and you prayed, God, please, would you give us a child? And if, God, you would just give us a child, we promise to commit ourselves to you all the days of our lives. If you would just give us a child, we promise this child will commit himself to you all the days of his life. He will sacrifice for you. God, would you please just give us a child? And God gave them a child, and sure enough, he gave himself fully to the Lord. He sacrificed all for the Lord. He even gave his life up as he followed those prayers. Serving his community, he sacrificed. But he was just so stinking strange. This man did not win any high school popularity contests. He wasn't too popular with his rabbis. Nor was he very popular with his fellow students. He was fond instead of um, opening up conversations with weather and sports and farming and agricultural news as people of the day were wont to do. Instead, he just skipped all of that small talk and he opened up his conversations with things like, uh, what would you say separates you from God? And why do you love your human tradition so much more than you love the very words of God? And why do you seem to be so concerned with the opinions of other people when you don't seem too concerned with the opinions of God? And perhaps most piercing enough, more piercing than any other statement that he would make, he would close his conversations with the simple word, repent. Go ahead and repent. If Jesus, who we talked about last week, came full of grace and truth, and Jesus led the way with grace, it is fascinating to me that the two times Jesus described there in John chapter 1, it says of him, he led with grace first and truth second. If Jesus came full of grace and truth, John, of course, came full of truth without much grace. And he was one to err on the side of truth. We would not have liked John the Baptist very much. But he is a major figure in all four of the Gospels. You find him in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is not the John who wrote the Gospel of John. That's a different John. There's lots of Johns in the Bible. But this is a John that the disciple John is now writing about for us as we seek to understand 
this forerunner of Jesus. He's the older cousin of Jesus. He's a fiery, open-air preacher who baptized and he prophesied and he was used by God to do great miracles. He fulfilled God's ordained role for him in this world before he was beheaded by the Jewish leader of his day. John the Baptist was a man of mystery, to be sure, but God sent him in his day to clear the way for the chosen one of God. And he's been preaching and baptizing out in the wilderness, and he's gained yet another crowd listening to his message. Let's hear what he has to say, starting here in verse 19 of John chapter 1. Now this was John the Baptist's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but he confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not Elijah. Are you the prophet? No, he answered, I'm not. Finally, they said, well, who are you then? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, chapter 40, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioning him said, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. There's a number of different takeaways I think we can gather from John's message here. I hope you'll hold on with me to three different takeaways today, three different takeaways for our lives. Even though Jesus came full of grace and truth, and John sometimes erred just on the side of truth, even so, John gives us three different very significant takeaways for us from this passage. And the first one is this. He explains simply in answer to the question, I am not the one. I'm not the one. Okay, so they come to him and they ask, who are you? And apparently John had heard the gossip that had begun developing. Apparently John had begun to hear the gossip though, that was developing in Jerusalem about him. And uh, this gossip was, is this one perhaps out in the wilderness who is baptizing, who is preaching? Is he the Messiah? And uh, the gossip had made its way to him, and so the result was these Jewish leaders uh, sent out emissaries from Jerusalem to the wilderness to ask John the, this question, are you the long-awaited Messiah? And John says, no, I'm not. I'm not the big dog. I'm not the one that you're looking for. Uh, I don't want any credit that is not mine. To which they ask, are you Elijah? And you say, well, why would they ask that? Are you Elijah the prophet? Well, what's up with that? You might go back and read later on today, 2, Corinthians, or 2 Kings chapter 2. And 2 Kings chapter 2, particularly verse 11, you'll see that Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament who was whisked away into heaven. 
and he simply ascended into heaven. He did not die here on earth. Now, that's not God's normal operating procedure, but God can do what he wants to do. And so God takes Elijah up into heaven, and there was speculation amongst Jews of the day that perhaps when God sent his Messiah, first he would send one like Elijah, or perhaps he would just send Elijah himself back to earth. And Elijah, of course, was this great prophet who preached repentance from the wilderness and was not popular with the religious authorities of his day. And so they speculated that maybe John the Baptist was Elijah reincarnated. And Elijah says, nope, I'm not that one either. I'm not Elijah either. But even there, he is being a little bit coy because like Elijah, he was this forerunner who preached repentance far from the wilderness. And they go on to ask, are you the prophet? And probably the prophet they have in mind there when they say the prophet is the prophet that gave them the law, which was Moses. Are you Moses who is out here preaching in the wilderness telling us to repent? And he says, no, no, not Moses either, to which find they kind of raise up their hands and say, well, who are you? Who do you think you are? Baptizing people and calling us out, even rabbis, to repentance. And he says, I'm like an announcer. I'm not the guy. I'm the announcer who introduces the guy. I'm the announcer, the broadcaster, who says, the big one is coming into the ring. I'm the trumpeter that blows the trumpet and announces the king is coming. I'm the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, make straight paths for the Lord is coming. Now, if they had any doubts at all, John positions himself below the lowest caste member of his society. You know, in the Roman culture of the day, it was a very castigated culture. There was multiple levels of economic standing and you were fixed in your level of economic standing in the Roman world. And there was slavery in the Roman Empire. Now, slavery then was not the chattel-based or race-based slavery that stained our country's history, but it was a bond-servant type of slavery in which an individual could sell themselves to a family as a means to provide for their own family. It was an indentured servitude kind of slavery. And what John is talking about here when he says, I'm not even worthy to untie this one's sandals, is he's saying, uh, you all know about these household servants, these household slaves, and their job would be this, that after you finish up a day at work, that you're down in the dusty bazaar all day selling figs and olives, or you're out in the fields slogging through the mud, individually planting the seeds in the fields for the coming harvest, and then you come home, you get back to home, and you take a seat in your home on a bench, then your household servant would come to you. And that household servant would gently untie the sandals around your feet and take out a brush and knock off the clods of dirt on your ankles and give you a tall glass of cold water and then bring out a wash basin and wash between the crevices of your toes and serve you that way. And John says, if you think that I am special, take a look at verse 26 here, if you think that I am special, 
There is one who stands among you that you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I would not even be worthy to untie as a household slave. This is John's example for us. John's the kind of guy who says, it ain't about me. It's not me, myself, and I. It's about one far greater than me. And so if there's any doubt whatsoever, he's telling his audience that it's come from Jerusalem, I am not the one. But listen now, can I point you to the one who is the one? I'm not the one. Let me point you to the one. I'd love to point you to the one. This is so good. Watch what he does now. After verse 28, he goes on to verse 29. And the next day, he points them to the one. Verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, look, there he is. There's the one. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the chosen one of God. That was so good. He says, I am not the one, but I'd love to point you to the one. There's so much in this passage, but let's uh, draw out a, a few key ideas that you see. Baptism takes a pretty large role in the first chapter of John. And you see some different kinds of baptism going on. It's hard to make sense of them all. So just uh, stick with me as I try to explain this. Within the Judaism of the day, there was a ceremonial baptism, of course, called ceremonial washing. So over in chapter 2 of John, you know, you'll hear about these washing jars. And they were part of the ceremonial washing that was done, in the first, or done throughout Jewish history, in which after you came in contact with someone who was deemed unclean, because they were working with pigs or with shellfish or something like that, or you came in contact with a pig, uh, something that was non-kosher, or you went to a funeral and you came in contact with a dead body, you became, according to the Judaism of the day, ceremonially unclean. And you had to go through a ceremonial washing, a ceremonial baptism, before you could go to the synagogue and worship, before you could go to the temple and worship. Now, Jesus fulfilled all that, so we don't need to do that anymore. Thanks be to God. Amen. Some of you showered before church, and some of you didn't. <laughs> and that's all good. Okay? That was ceremonial washing of the day. There was also a baptism in Judaism of the day when a Gentile, that is a non-Jew, came to faith in Yahweh, in the one true God, and they joined the Jewish community, they would be baptized. Now, John's baptism, of course, is a baptism of repentance. And it wasn't just for non-Jews. It was specifically oriented toward the Jews of the day who oftentimes were not following Yahweh as he was revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. And so John would say to Jews of the day, you've gotten greedy. 
You've begun to worship your shekels. Repent. He would say to the Jews of the day, you care too much about human applause. Repent. He would say to the Jews of the day, you are angry, and yet you don't help people. You love your stuff, and yet you don't help the poor. Repent. These are the kinds of things that John was saying to the Jews of the day. And then they would repent and go through an outward washing that symbolized this renewal. But John says there's another kind of repentance, another kind of baptism though, that is going on that's even deeper than that, and it's the Holy Spirit baptism that Jesus was about. You really got to stick with me here as I try to explain this. But the baptism though, that comes to us as followers of Christ is this. That as you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord, first your sins are forgiven, and at the same time as your sins are forgiven, when you believe in Christ, when you trust in Christ as your Savior and your King, then what happens is the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of you. Okay? So you become the temple of the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit previously lived in the temple of God, now you become the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within your soul, and you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that you become a holy roller. It doesn't mean that you start speaking in tongues or you get all charismatic. You might start speaking in tongues. God might give you that gift. I think he still does so, but he might not. Oftentimes he doesn't. What's more significant than that is this. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. You are baptized. You are immersed in the Holy Spirit such that you have a new direction to your life. At one time, you did not have the Holy Spirit and you only went after your flesh. Now you have the Holy Spirit and you have a new strength, a new energy to follow God that you did not have before. As the Old Testament prophesied in Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you and I will lead you to follow my laws and keep all my decrees. See, now there's this V8 Hemi inside of you, underneath your rib cage, that is directing you to follow Christ in the way that you previously were not following Christ because you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Amen? This is yours. It's not just that you believe and you are forgiven. No. In addition, God is truly with you. He is inside of you. He is for you. He will never let you go. The Holy Spirit is with you. So we should probably stop teaching our kids that Jesus is inside you. It's not Jesus inside you, okay? It's not a little baby Jesus inside you. It's the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who is able to be always and everywhere present with every believer across all time, across the world. He's present with us here and now. As sure as you're sitting here today, he is present with you. That's baptism well with the Holy Spirit. Baptism with the Holy Spirit is the positive gift of new life in God in which the Spirit dwells inside of us, enabling us to progressively become more and more like Jesus. That's the positive element. Um, the baptism that we practice here, baptism well with water, is a symbol of the cleansing. Kind of like John's baptism. It's a symbol of the cleansing that as you became a follower of Christ and you received the Holy Spirit, now you symbolize that with a cleansing an outward demonstration of the inward reality that I've been bought with the price of Christ's precious blood and I am his. And I want to testify it to the world. 
You want both. As a follower of Christ, first and foremost, you receive the Holy Spirit, and then second, you demonstrate that to others by being publicly baptized as a follower of Christ. Now, here's the, the application out of all of that. Well, one application might be that if you haven't been baptized and you're a follower of Christ, you want to be baptized. But another application what would be this. John reminds us that throughout this passage to resist mere emotionalism in our worship. And he also reminds us in this passage to resist celebrity worship. Follow me here. John doesn't merely love God, as important as loving God is. John the Baptist does not merely glorify God, as important as glorifying God is. John holds on to content in his mind, theological content about God. He holds on to theological content in his mind about Jesus Christ, which enables him to stand strong when he is about to be killed. What you see from John is not just this emotional appeal. You see from John this conviction about who Jesus is. Look at verse 29, for example. He says immediately when Jesus approaches, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what he has in mind there is this is the sacrificial Lamb of God who's going to go up to that old rugged cross that we just sang about, and he's going to remove your sin and mine by putting his righteousness in us. That's what he's saying. Look at the Lamb of God who takes away our sin, removes sins from us, and puts his goodness upon us. That's verse 29. Verse 30, he goes on to say, there's a man who comes after me who has surpassed me because he was before me. What's he doing there? He's affirming the self-existence of Jesus, the eternality of Jesus. Not just that he's a really good man who gives me really good Jesus vibes. No, he's saying he's pre-existent. He's the creator. He's the eternal one. He knows who Jesus is. Look at verse 33. He says, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because it's his spirit. Jesus gives his Holy Spirit to us. He's affirming the Trinity in this moment. And then finally, verse 34, he says, I've seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Chosen one, of course, was Jewish language for the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the eternal one. He is the self-existent, pre-existent one. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the other sins of the world. What an example of a man who believed the right content about Jesus. Friends, it's not enough to just teach our kids to fall in love with Jesus. As important as that is. That's not going to be enough for them when the sharp winds of life come into their lives. They're going to need to hold on to some theological content about who Jesus is that gives them stability when the good vibes of Jesus go away. And they will. Right? They will. For all of us, from time to time, our feelings ebb and flow, so our faith has to be much, much greater than mere emotionalism. 
John resists that, and he also resists the celebrity culture that was growing in his day and is such a big deal in our day as well. John was this very strange, and yet at the same time, he must have had some charisma to him. It, like he's a charismatic personality in some way that these large crowds are coming from Jerusalem into the desert to listen to him preach on a regular basis in spite of how odd he was and in spite of the really intense, truth-filled message that he gave that would not fit in any seeker-sensitive church today. Okay? But the crowds came out to him, and he resists celebrity worship by saying, I am not the one. Let me point you to the one. Now, this is critical in our day because we live in a day of incredible celebrity worship. Folks worship pastors, and they should not. Folks worship politicians, and they should not. Folks worship the latest singer or artist or movie star or athlete. You should not. You're on thin ice if you are. Because people, all people, will let you down. You're in a dangerous place if you put too much hope in any person. And John is saying, no, I'm not doing that. I must decrease. He must increase. I must become less. He must become greater. Let me point you to the one. I, I have a pastor friend in San Antonio named Roger. And Roger used to be the head of secret service for the Dallas Police Department. And he sent himself through seminary with the police department in Dallas. And when he was the head of Secret Service in Dallas, big city, he would regularly have celebrities uh, that would come into that city requesting Secret Service intel, Secret Service protection. And so when the governor of Texas came in, he was there. When presidents came in, he was there. When celebrity pastors and athletes and movie stars or whoever came into Dallas, he was there. And he would repeatedly meet these people and guard and protect these people while they came into Dallas. And I remember asking Roger, I said, man, were you ever intimidated by being around a president of the United States? Were you ever intimidated being around the governor of Texas? And he said, Adrian, trust me when I tell you, people are people. They're not special, Adrian. Whether they have a lot of fame or no fame at all, whether they have a lot of wealth or no wealth at all, they're just people. Don't put too much focus on them. Don't praise them. Don't seek their autographs. Don't engage in a hero worship of them. They will let you down. They're all just people. And this is John's wonderful example to us. I don't want to be like John in this way. Like, I don't want to go on a paleo diet of locusts and honey. No thanks. And I'm good with the conversations about sports and weather and all the rest. That's all fine by me. But I want to be like John in this way. He must increase. i got to become less. I want to be John like this. If someone were to come to me, if someone were to come to you and say, who are you exactly? Could you go from that and point them to Jesus? What is it that makes you tick? What's your identity? Could you go from that and point them 
to Jesus. This is John's example for us. I am not the one. Let me point you to the one. And finally, let's clear the way for the one. And this is what each of us needs to do today. We need to clear the way for the one. All four of the Gospels record John the Baptist saying these identical words as he makes way for Jesus, as Jesus entering into time and space, entering into history. In each case, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John the Baptist is quoted as repeating Isaiah chapter 40, I am the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, make a highway for the Lord. Clear the way for the Lord, make a straight path for the Lord, allow him to come in, allow him to come near. Make a straight way for the Lord. And in God's good providence, in God's sovereignty, he has decided that part of the way we make a way for the Lord is this word called repentance, which none of us likes, but it's critical that all of us would regularly embrace. And repentance is simply this, it's acknowledging that I am going this way toward my own flesh in this area of life, but I recognize that's not the way of God, and so I turn from that and I move this way toward God in his will for my life. I apologize, God, for going this way, and I ask now, God, that you would help me to go this way toward the cross. And so I think my question for you today is this, as we wrap up and while we head to communion, is there any boulder, is there any impediment that stands in the way between you and God right now that needs to be cleared away such that you could draw near to Jesus Christ, your Savior? Because we clear the way not on a one-time basis, but on a repetitive basis recognizing that we all miss the mark sometimes. And so we need God, once again, through his Holy Spirit, to come in and clear the way from all of those impediments such that we would experience Jesus more richly, such that we would know Jesus more richly, such that we would follow Jesus more richly. I want to invite our band up on stage right now. And what we're going to do as we go into communion, both here and in the venue, is we're going to take just a few moments of quiet. And I don't, know, but I don't know about you, but I, I get very little quiet in my life. Anyone else? There are very few moments of utter silence in my life when we're not singing and nobody's talking. And so what I'd like to do is just ask you to quiet down and perhaps you close your eyes. If you want to keep them open, look at the cross. That's all fine. But I'd like you to ask one of these questions. What is it that God would like to change in you? What is it that God would like to change in you? What is it that God would want you to stop doing that you're currently doing? Or what is it that God would want you to start doing which you're not doing? Is there an area that you're really not giving yourself fully to God? I'd invite you just to meditate on one of those questions, and we're going to have a moment of silence here, both in the auditorium and in the venue. We'll just listen to the piano in the background. And out of that, 
we repent. We clear the way, and then we take communion together. That's the proper order. So, Father, would you please work in us now? Please teach us now, Lord. Holy Spirit, is there anything in us that you want to remove? God, is there anything that stands in the way between us and you this morning? Would you please clear the way? Is there a critical spirit in me? Is there a judgmental spirit in me? Have I been engaging in white lies? Do I have an angry spirit? Is there lust or bitterness or resentment sitting in my heart? Am I struggling now with pride or envy? Do I harbor judgmental thoughts against a certain group of people? Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak to us and clear the way.